Have you ever noticed how it's not unusual when you read about men or women of the faith who've gone before us to find out that, that most of them went through seasons of discouragement, of depression, of great difficulty. And, and in fact, if most of us were honest and we've been a believer for any amount of time and, and lived our lives engaged in the things of God, most of us would have to say that there have been times in our lives where we have gone through similar struggles and similar depressions and discouragements. So one of my questions is, you know, when we, when we think about the, the Christian life, sometimes we imagine that these things are not supposed to be a part of it. You know that song, Now I Am the Happier All the Day. You know, not sure how true that is, actually. <laughs> Why is it the case that those living by faith and pursuing the Lord are susceptible to such discouragement? And let me give you a few reasons why we are susceptible to discouragement and why this is a battle that we are facing all the time. One of them is because we do claim to serve the true and the living God. And our God has made incredible promises, hasn't he? He says, I have come that you may have life and they may have it more abundantly. And so sometimes when things do not seem to be turning out in our lives the way we expect them to turn out, right? We have these expectations towards life. We have these expectations of how things should look like. And we all have them, don't we? Sometimes we get very discouraged. You know, the Bible says, hope deferred makes a heart sick. Hope deferred makes a heart sick. I love the sound of babies. <laughs> Praise God for babies. <laughs> Hope deferred makes a heart sick, doesn't it? And so sometimes we feel like we are losing more than we are winning. The appearance does not seem to make sense to us. We've given ourselves fully over to God, and this is what we get? I think of John the Baptist when he says, Are you the one who is coming, or should we expect someone else? <laughs> you know, even... John the Baptist struggled, didn't he? Understanding his expectations versus what was happening. And so we might wonder, why am I even trying? Why am I doing this? Why walk the path of faith if things don't seem to be working out anyway? Am I doing this really for nothing? Is there a purpose for what I'm doing? And so I want us to understand at the very beginning that God's people in Babylonian captivity... We're in great danger of succumbing to such discouragement. All they saw around them were the Babylonians, the false gods, and reminders of their defeat. They were reminded constantly that God had given them up. How the Babylonians had defeated them. And everywhere they go, they would have seen and be reminded of that. They lived, in a sense, with the appearance of defeat all around them. And here they were, the people of God, 
The people who knew the true and living God, the victorious God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who had made these incredible promises to them, but all they saw around them were the Babylonians in defeat. And they knew back at home their whole land was decimated and destroyed. So God, in this passage, is addressing the very people of God, the remnant of God who remained in Babylon. He is addressing those who were in the darkness of exile, but were remaining faithful to God. And we need to understand exactly who he's speaking to. We need to understand who is God addressing here? Who is God speaking to? So we are going to look at how we can know exactly whom God is speaking to. We're going to look at who are the people God is speaking to. And I want you to see it in this passage. And you can divide this passage up into three sections. Verse 1 through 3 is the first one. Verse 4 through 6 is the second. And verse 7 through 8 is the third. And each one of them begins by God describing whom he is speaking to. So it is very clear who he is addressing. So God describes who he is speaking to in verse 1 as those who are pursuing righteousness and are seeking the Lord. Notice verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Now I want to talk about these people whom God is describing. What does it mean to pursue righteousness? And to pursue righteousness means exactly what it says. To pursue the right way of living. <laughs> it means to pursue the will of God. It means to pursue the way God has prescribed for us to live. To pursue to do things according to his will. In other words, to submit to him as Lord. To live out our faith is to live a righteous life. And to live a life of repentance. That's to live a life of faith. They also were seeking the Lord himself. Now this doesn't mean that God was playing some kind of hide and seek, right? This doesn't mean that they didn't know who the Lord was. What this means is that the number one priority of their lives was to know God better. It means that their primary pursuit in life was to know God. Right? And these two thoughts actually go together, don't they? To pursue true and real righteousness is to seek the Lord. To seek the Lord is to pursue true and, and, right, and righteousness, right? If you try to pursue righteousness without seeking the Lord as your motivation and your pursuit, you would be a Pharisee. <laughs> you would be a legalist. You would not have righteousness at all. There is no righteousness to be found apart from seeking the Lord. They go hand in hand. They go together. So it's important we see both of them together here. In verse 4, he describes those whom he is speaking to as my people, my nation. Verse 4, give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. And such language here is not describing what they do as much as who they are. And it's a very personal relationship, isn't it? It's a very personal thing to be called for God to call you my people and for God to call you my nation. Right? And these are the very same people who are seeking righteousness, pursuing righteousness, and seeking the Lord. They are my people. They are my nation, right? Now, surely he's not talking about every ethnic Israelite. He's not talking about every Jew themselves. 
he's talking about there were some Jews who were not God's people, right? And there are some Gentiles who are God's people. And there are some Gentiles who are God's people <laughs> and God's nation. The true people of God. And so what he's talking about here are those who are looking by faith to the Lord for salvation. Those are the true people of God. And specifically, he's talking about the remnant within the people of God, the Jews. In verse 7, he describes those whom he's speaking to as those who know righteousness and the people in whose heart is my law. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. So this is someone who's not just interested in the right ways of God, not just someone who's thinking that the ways of God are interesting to them and they're just an aspect of their lives. These are people who are pursuing obedience to the word of God. They hear the word of God and want to obey it and want to do it despite the struggle that they have within them. <laughs> there is an overwhelming desire that pursues God despite the struggle. And the reason they are doing this is because in their heart, they have internalized the law of God. They have a heart that is molded and shaped to love God in his word, in his will. They do obedience because God's law is in their hearts. And once again, this is not legalism. This is far from it. This is true righteousness, right? To have hearts that are shaped to love God. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey my commands, right? They go hand in hand. So here's my question. Who is God addressing here? God is simply addressing the believing remnant. This is simply saying, I am speaking to those who are believing in me. Those who are remaining steadfast. Despite the struggle, despite the difficulty, despite the depression, despite the weariness, these are the people of God who are pursuing God. And guess what? This is the same way we could describe the people of God today. These are the same ways we could describe the people of God today. They are those who are pursuing righteousness. They are those who are seeking the Lord. They are my people. They are my nation. They know righteousness and whose heart is God's law. So, in other words... This is for us to hear. This is for us if you are believing today, if you are pursuing God today. This is for you. So what do such people need? What do we need? What do people who have had their hope deferred, in a sense, need more than anything? And the answer is, we need encouragement to remain steadfast in the faith. I mean, that's so obvious, I don't even need to mention it, right? That's what we need more than anything. But sometimes we need to be reminded of that. When we get up in the morning, what we need more than anything is we need encouragement to remain steadfast in the faith because everything we're going to see throughout the day is going to be opposed to the faith. Everything is going to say, why are you doing this? Why are you pursuing God? And, and just understand this, that the Jews who were not living by faith did not need encouragement. Because they didn't believe the promises of God anyway. They didn't believe God was going to do anything. It's those who have faith who need encouragement to remain steadfast. So how do weary people continue to walk in the faith? Well, we learned from the servant song the answer to that question. 
I want you to hear, again, Isaiah 50, verse 4. And this is still in the same context here, okay? Isaiah 50, verse 4 is the servant song. And we learned how the people of God remain steadfast in the faith despite the weariness and the difficulty and the struggle of life. Listen to what it says. The Lord God has given me, meaning the servant, who is Jesus Christ, the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Courage is found by listening to the word of God. Strength is found. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He is the one who sustains us in this dry and weary land. He is the bread from heaven, right? right? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is alone how God's people remain steadfast in a weary land. And we also learn that God's people are identified not only as needing the word of God, but as listening to the servant's word in Isaiah 50 verse 10. Notice the application of this was Isaiah 50 verse 10. What do you do since the servant is the one who sustains us with the word? Listen to this. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. So the people of God are not only those who need the word of God, but they are the people of God. They are the people who drink the word of God, whose meat is the word of God, who dwell in the word of God and know that they are sustained by it and cannot survive without it. We cannot survive without it and we know it and we will survive with the word of God. It will sustain. So if God is going to encourage his people to continue in the faith, how might he do that? What might you think that God might do if he's to encourage us to remain in the faith? Well, the answer is, he is going to encourage us to listen to his word. He's going to say over and over again, listen to me. Listen to me, people of God. Listen to me. Hear my word. That is the most loving an encouraging thing that God can do for us this morning is to turn our attention to him, for that is where life is found. And notice, every verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6, and 7 through 8, each one of them begins by speaking to his people and encouraging them to listen to him. Verse 1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Verse 4, give attention to me, my people. Verse 7, Listen to me, you who know righteousness. So what God is doing here is not a mystery. It is absolutely clear. Listen to me. Give attention to me. Give ear to me. Listen to me. So we shouldn't miss the point that's being made today. If you fall asleep for 99% of this message, you should understand what you need and what God is calling you to do. Listen to God. Or we will not be able to to be sustained in this world that we live in. Listen to God and you will have all the nourishment you need to remain steadfast in the faith. So what does it mean to listen to God? Just real quickly, what does it mean? And we've said this over and over again, but sometimes I think we have this idea that hearing God's word is going to be some mystical thing that's just going to, just without even thinking about it, it's going to infuse us with some kind of power to do something. And that's not true at all. We must hear God's word with faith. 
with the desire to obey and to follow his words. That's what it means to hear God's word. When the Bible says, hear me, listen to me, he's not saying just to hear sounds. He's saying hear with faith, hear with the idea of obedience. Listen as one who is hungry and thirsty to know who God is and what he has called you to do. To see and cherish in glory in our God. Listen with the ears of faith. That's what it means to listen. Kind of like when I tell my children, did you hear me? I'm not saying, did you hear sounds in your ears? I'm saying, you need to do what I told you to do because you're not doing it. <laughs> right? That's what I'm saying. James tells us that if you say, I love God's word, even if you have genuine sounds that you hear that sound so nice and you love the words because they sound so good to you, but you do not do what it says, you are deceiving yourself. You are not really even listening to it. It doesn't matter if you like the sounds of it or even what it seems to say. If you're not doing it, you're deceiving yourself. So God gives these weary people, as you and me, a little weary maybe, three encouragements for why we should continue to listen to him. That's what he says in these verses here. First, you should listen to God because nothing is impossible for him to do no matter what it appears like. Verses 1 through 3. So if you to understand how God can do anything and how you should listen to him because he can't do anything, we are told we need to go back to where, to where God's people came from. Notice it says, look to the rock from which you were honed and to the quarry from which you were dug. Rock and, and pit there or quarry has to do with the, the origins, the source, where you came from. And it brings us back and it tells us the source of where you came from, God's people came from, is Abraham and Sarah, right? Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. And what we're told here is that God made these incredible claims to Abraham and Sarah, didn't he? He made these incredible promises, like mind-blowing promises. The problem was that it was impossible for these things to come about by any earthly standard. God made these Promises that were humanly impossible to come about on purpose. God had set everything up so that there is no way this could humanly possi possibly come about. Listen to what it says. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. And if you remember, it says, look to the rock from which you were honed. Well, that word look is the same word that God says to Abraham. And he said, look to the stars. Look to the stars and count them. And he says, that is what your, um, your, your future looks like, your children look like. They will be as num numberless as the stars of the sky. So shall your children be in Genesis 15, 5. But you see, there's a problem here. As we mentioned already, Abraham was pretty much dead. Sarah was pretty much dead <laughs> in childbearing standards. They were, they were too old for children. This was impossible. So everything looks hopeless. Sounds like the case for Israel, doesn't it? Sounds like the case for us oftentimes, doesn't it? Everything looks hopeless. We wonder, is it possible for God to fulfill what he has promised? It doesn't look that way. Yet God amazingly fulfills his promise. And the exiles in Babylon were first-hand witnesses to see the faithfulness of God to his promises. And God had made a great nation. 
out of those who are as good as dead. If God can do this for Abraham, then this means he can do this, the same thing for the exiles in Babylon, and he can do the same thing for you and me. He can restore life to barren Zion, and he can bring life to you and to me, as he has promised, although we are as good as dead. <laughs> the story of Abraham and Sarah serves as a pattern for all of God's people throughout history of how God is able to fulfill his promises despite all odds. You see, this is not an anomaly. <laughs> what we see here is not to be seen as an anomaly. This is the very pattern of what God does. This is how God works. God loves to work this way. So why are we surprised? Why are we surprised when we look around us and it seems like God cannot fulfill his promises? Why are we surprised when we look around us and we wonder, God, where are you? Romans 4 verse 17 says this, God gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. God loves to do this. God loves to work this way. God loves to show the greatness of the glory of his name by working in this very manner, in this very way. But God does not just give us an argument for why you should listen to him. He does not just say, I can do the impossible and here's evidence. Look to your past. But he also explains the seemingly impossible promises that he is going to accomplish. So that we would listen to him. And so that we would marvel in light of the, of the confident promises that he will fulfill because of Abraham. Because of Sarah. We have already seen him prove that he's going to do it. And now he says, this is what I'm going to do. So rejoice and marvel at what God is going to accomplish for his people who are weary and tried by this world. Listen to verse 3. Verse 3, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. So here is the impossible situation that they would have seen. They're in Babylon. Their land is demolished. There's nothing left of it. And what does God say? God says he's going to go do again the impossible for his people. God has promised to comfort them by bringing blessing instead of cursing. The Garden of Eden, even greater than the Garden of Eden. The, the, the restoration of God's promises, of God's goodness, is going to be restored instead of the wilderness that they were in. And this promise is not just the land of Israel. It involves the entire earth. God is going to recreate and show us his glory and his power. So what effect will this grace have on God's people? This great glory that awaits us? This amazing work of God that he's going to accomplish? Well, it should bring joy and gladness and thanksgiving and song. When we know that God's going to fulfill these promises, we can rejoice when we hear what God's going to do. So rejoice, people of God. Give thanks, people of God, and one day we will fully enter it, and we will, we will experience the promises of God. So how does anyone live by faith today in God's great staggering promises that he makes? Well, you must look at God's faithfulness to his promises in the past. And if we do, we will continue to listen to God and hear his word of promise with faith. Second, 
You should listen to God because he has promised a permanent, eternal fix to all that has been broken. How will God do this fixing? Well, he will do it by establishing his perfect rule over his people for their benefit. Notice what it says here. For a law will go out from me, and I will set up my justice justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. So my question for you is, is whether or not our society is actually progressing. Are we fixing things? Do you think in a matter of time that everything will be fixed? How about our new government? Are they going to fix the problems that we have? Do you think it's possible? And if anything that history has shown us and anything that's playing out over and over and over again is that human perfection and progress is a lie and it is an impossibility. <laughs> We're continually going backwards, you might say. So what great news when you hear that God himself is going to fix things by bringing his perfect rule for his people. He is sending out a law and a light. And this is not just some lame word that people give all the time when they're running for some office, claiming that they can somehow establish some kind of like correction of the problems that are going on. This is the effectual word of God that is going to accomplish everything he sets out to do. And he will do it through his just and righteous rule. The word judge here can make us think that somehow this is God's uh, judgment in the sense of, of, of wrath. But really what this is talking about, this is speaking of God's people, that we are not going to experience God's wrath of judgment. We're going to experience the goodness and the blessings of his perfect judging, of his perfect ruling over his people. And this is going to be the greatest good for us. This is going to be the perfect, uh, perfect government. And he will do this by his mighty arm, right? He will do this himself. He will establish his people. So what does justice mean here? We have some strange ideas of justice, don't we? We, we have bought in in many ways to the world's idea of justice. And it's made us very confused. But here, what it is, is the fair and right governing of the world by its creator, according to the purpose that he created it for. Listen to what Oswald said. The opposite of justice is not injustice, but chaos. Which, of course, includes injustice, but is much more far-reaching. And this is not merely to pass judicial sentence upon, but to govern according to creation principles. And what effect will this perfect rule have on God's people? Well, it will bring forgiveness of their sins. It will bring peace in their relationship with God and relationship with each other. It will bring eternal comfort and joy and perfect well-being throughout. You see, justice here refers to salvation, the establishing of God's righteous kingdom, where he rules and his ruling is synonymous with our receiving the fullness of our salvation. The prophet could interchange these words here and could say, he's going to save you and he's going to bring justice to you and he's going to rule over you and you're going uh, to bathe yourself in the blessings of of his perfect rule. 
This is why the ruling here is not just something that believing Jews are waiting for, but something that stunningly reaches to the far ends of the world, throughout the whole world. This is something far greater than what Cyrus is going to do in bringing his people back from Babylon. <laughs> this is not ultimately what that is referring to here. What it's talking about here is the accomplishing of something greater than captivity. This is the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham, which reaches to the nations, the blessings to the nations that we see here. Do you remember who we were told would accomplish this? Do you remember we were told would accomplish this bringing forth of justice? And the answer is, we just read about it. It is the, the servant himself who would bring this about. In chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, and 49, verse 6. And we are told that this justice is imminent. It is near. It is coming. And the language here is, it is as if it is already here. And that's, uh, that's just saying that it's as good as done. It's saying it's as good as done. It's, it's coming soon. And we know that, in fact, Jesus has done this through the gospel of salvation. What an awesome, what an awesome, um, what an awesome view we have from our perspective of this justice that God has established. And one day we will see in its fullness. We are right now in the already not yet, right? We are not there yet, but God has accomplished this perfect justice through the cross. He has made things right through his own powerful arm. And we can see how God has done this through his own power and his own strength. Today, the longing of the nations is being fulfilled as they embrace the gospel. As they, by faith, bow to the true and living God and his good news of salvation. We who are the church get to be a part of this great work of God, don't we? We get to be a part of this. This is an incredible privilege that we have of being a part of God, God's kingdom. And God's bringing people into his kingdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Into his own righteous rule and how good it is to be under his rule. You know, we should rejoice. We should be thankful to God that we have the privilege of being under his righteous rule. God helps us to have perspective by contrasting the fleeting nature of this broken world that we can see versus the eternal nature of his righteous, somewhat, somewhat invisible kingdom, right? When we look around us, we don't see the kingdom of God as visibly as we see this world. But listen to the perspective that God gives in verses 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. If we were to look up at the heavens and we were to look down at the earth, what would we see? We would we see things that are broken, but that appear like they're going to last forever, like they will never end. These are the things that seem to be the most concrete, the most long-lasting. We, 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 they appear like they will never end, that they're firm and stable. And these are sadly the places that most people look to for guidance and hope. We look to them for our salvation. We look to our jobs. We look to our family. We look to our money. We look to our friends. We look to anything that is around us, that is above us. And we think, surely these things are going to last. Surely these things are going to save us. We cling to these things like someone who is running up to the top of the Twin Towers as they are just about to fall. 
How vain do we live our lives as we pursue these things that are bound for destruction. This is why we need God to help us by giving us the right perspective on life. We need God's word to speak into our minds and our hearts if we are to live with the right perspective on the life that we are living in. God says that what appears to our physical eyes to be the most stable and lasting will in reality vanish away like smoke and fade away like an old garment. God says, do not be deceived. Everything we see around us, looking up or looking down, will perish and fade away. Not only that, but what is even more disturbing is that we will all die as well. We will perish away just like the earth and just like the heavens. Our lives are short and we are perishing. The Bible says this, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose or forfeit his soul? But God helps us here, doesn't he? What does not appear with the physical eyes to be stable and lasting, what is hard for us to see, God's salvation, will on the other hand last forever. God's righteousness will endure forever. God's righteous rule is eternal and those who are trusting him will not be dismayed. They will not be put to shame. If this is the case, then where should we put our confidence? Where should we run to? What should we hold tightly to? Should we run up the Twin Towers as fast as we can? Or should we run to the God who is eternal and everlasting, who has eternal life with him? You should listen to God finally because God will reward and vindicate those who do with eternal salvation. Verse 7. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them up like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. If you listen to God, how will the world treat you? The Bible tells us exactly what the world thinks of believers. Romans 8 verse 7 says this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now that is not speaking about a believer who is struggling. That is talking about an unbeliever. That is speaking of every unbeliever's mind. For the mind that is on the flesh, meaning an unbeliever, is hostile to God, meaning at war with God, hates God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. And how we know it's at war with God is because it does not obey God. It does not desire to obey God. They might think they love God. They might think they desire God. But the mere fact that they do not want to submit to God and obey Him means that they are hostile and at odds with God. And so what we need to understand is that how the world thinks of God is how the world is going to treat and think of you. Listening to God will put you at odds with a world that is opposed to God. And we might not feel it, we might not think it all the time, but it is the truth. It is the truth. And this is part of the reason why believers in the exile of Babylon were facing discouragement. They were feeling the opposition from the sinful world that was opposed to God and His purposes. And so will you feel the opposition of the world. Believers will be treated in the same way the servant of God was treated. Remember in chapter 50, where the servant of God was reviled, was treated shamefully? Well, that's the way you and I will be treated. 
So how are believers supposed to live in this world where there is so much shame and so much persecution and so much trouble? How do believers live with, uh, in, in the struggle of this world? Well, it says here, you're not to fear man or be dismayed at the world's revilings, but continue to follow God. And how is it possible for us to do this? Isn't that the question? How can we live this way in a hostile world? Well, you must know the outcome for those who listen to God and for those who refuse to listen to God. You must know that God will vindicate his people and you must know that God will reward those who listen to him. Those who stand opposed to God and his people are condemning themselves to judgment. They will face the eternal fire of judgment from which they can never escape. There is nothing more destructive than to oppose God and his people. That is to bring doom and judgment on ourselves. But those, on the other hand, who listen to God will partake of the eternal salvation that comes from God. Those who are living by faith will partake of the eternal salvation. They will be vindicated. God will eternally deliver you and reward you. Romans 8 verse 31 says, If God is for us, then who can be against us? And we must arm ourselves with that thinking if we are to live by faith in this world. And we must remember that this is exactly how Jesus was able to endure the reviling that he received in his life. He did it because he knew the reward that was ahead of him. Remember what it says in Hebrews? Jesus endured because, I'm sorry, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice, who for the joy that was set before him. That's how he endured the cross. So as we enter into this new year, one thing I guarantee for every believer here is that it's not going to be easy and it might get much harder, especially if you listen to God. The greatest danger is for us to give up and to quit and to go back to shrink from our faith. But if you and I are to persevere, we must devote ourselves to listening to his voice and obeying him. We must plan it. We must not be lazy. We must commit ourselves to God and his word. This is the only way we can live with the right perspective in this life. This is the only way we can live with joy in the future promises of God. This is the only way we can look back at God's fulfilling of his promises and know that he will fulfill the promises of God that he has said he will accomplish. And we can only do this if we know the work of Christ, that he has accomplished our salvation single-handedly. And this is something that we will forget daily. And I don't mean forget in our minds, but we will, it will be lost from the center of our hearts if we do not daily bring it back to our memory and our thoughts. And we must fight hard to do this. We must fight hard if we are to remain faithful to God daily. So what will it look like to live with the right perspective of God's word? Matthew 4, 4 verse 4 says this. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We must live as if it is our daily food. How do you eat daily? You plan, don't you? You do some kind of planning. You buy your food. You get it ready so that you have something to eat or you go out and buy it. But some way, some way or shape or form, we plan it, right? 
We eat, we make sure we eat. How much more important is it that we eat the word of God? 1 Peter 2 verse 2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. You know, this is the very reason why God brought the trials on the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness. The very reason why God brought the trials on them was to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Listen to um, Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. He humbled you and let, let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So praise God for the trials. They lead us to lean into God's word and find our sustaining, nourishing faith by which we live and do not die of starvation. And the trials bring us face to face with the words of God. They throw us at the word of God because only in there are we sustained. So this only means, this means not only that we must sustain ourselves with the word of God, but we have a responsibility towards each other. It is our responsibility to encourage each other in the faith. We need to be speaking and encouraging each other to listen to God's word and speaking the word of God to each other. Who are you exhorting with your life to continue steadfast in the faith? Because if you are not, then you are failing to make disciples of all nations. We are failing to do the very thing which God has created us to do, which is to, to, to feed each other the word of God and to nourish each other and to be God's means of preserving each other in the faith. We live in a dying world where there is no food or water. This is the only place, the only place where we can find our sustenance. And how can we live our lives um, in such a way that we do not become the means that God has called us to of, of, of encouraging each other for their eternal well-being to remain faithful in the faith? So yes, give the gospel to unbelievers, but make sure you are making every effort to encourage your fellow believers in the faith. And we can often forget to do that. And we must not forget to do that. We must devote each other to doing this. We don't want to say on our last day that we failed to do what God created us to do. This is a great privilege, a great responsibility. Let us devote ourselves to doing this. Know God's word and then give it to each other. Feed each other the word of God. How do you do this? Well, do what God does here. Encourage those around you to hear God's word and give them the word of God. My favorite times during the week is when I sit down with couples and individuals and we just go through books of the Bible. And uh, right now I'm going through Hebrews with one couple in the church. And we sit down, I read it, and we just talk about it. We don't need to do anything incredibly special, do we? That's the answer right there. Right there is what we need, and we are sustained and nourished as we do this. this. This is a great idea, by the way, for each one of us to be doing with each other. Sitting down, reading, and discussing the Bible. And by the way, if you don't know what to do when you get to the Bible, there are three questions that whenever you open the Bible, you could ask. And I'll just leave you with this. One of the questions is, what does this say about God? The whole Bible is telling us about God. What does this say about his greatness? What does this say about his glory? What does this say about... How, 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 how powerful and mighty he is. And second of all, what does this say about my need for him? So you can open up a verse and say, what does this say about God? And what does this say about my need for him? Because the whole Bible is showing us we need him. 
The Bible doesn't compliment us. The Bible doesn't make us look good. The Bible says you are absolutely helpless without God. You need God. And thirdly, how does it teach me to pray? The Bible is teaching us God is great. We need him. Therefore, cry out to him. Lord, we need you. And so you take Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is our creator. We are the created. We need him. Lord, I need you today. Help me to live for you. You are my only hope. You are the one who sustains my every breath. God, help me to live for you today. I need you. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sustaining us by your grace and your mercy and your love. Thank you for opening up our minds, God, for showing us, Lord, that we are helpless and lost and we are on the road of judgment, running down the road of judgment to our own destruction. But God, you graciously and mercifully opened up our minds and our hearts. Lord, you showed us the, the glorious treasure of who Christ is. And Lord, I thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you came to this earth and died on a cross in our place. You took our punishment so that we might bear the righteousness of Christ. Lord, what a gracious and kind and merciful God you are. Lord, what can we say today but thank you, Lord, for your grace. And Lord, we thank you that you also left us with your word today. That you have given us bread in the wilderness, in the desert of this life. You've, you've given us water to feed us and to nourish us with. I pray, Lord, that we would not fail to take advantage of your life sustenance that you've given to us. Lord, may we drink deeply and eat well of your word that you have given it to us this year. And Lord, I pray that we would plan ourselves in such a way, plan our days around the word of God. And Lord, may we be those people who rejoice and delight in our God this year because we are drinking deeply of your word. We love you and praise you and thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your love for us. And Lord, if there is anyone in here who does not know you, who is outside of your favor, who is standing under the judgment of God, I pray that today you would arrest their hearts and their souls and that they would cry out to God to save them from their sins. And we thank you, Lord, that you are mighty to save. In Jesus' name, amen.